Genesis 18, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, and he sat at the, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to me, your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is grave, I will go down to see whether they, have done all, whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do ask you to make your word clear to us today. Speak to us, Lord, through your word. Cause our hearts to hear. Instruct us. Build us up, strengthen our faith. Lord, we pray that you would call the dead to life today. May the good news that is ours in Christ Jesus be boldly proclaimed today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As I'm getting older, my eyes continue to get worse, and so I've got this new pair of glasses that are, um, they're fifteen ninety nine transitional. Okay, so that tells you the level of quality. And so by looking at them, I was hoping it would help me during worship to both look out and also to read. And I can tell you that everything now is just blurry. So I know I'm mixing up some words and saying some, saying some wrong, I, I think I sang some wrong words, so I apologize for that. Uh, but you all are my friends, so you forgive me, right? That's what friends do. You know, the word friends is something that is pretty, a pretty broad term in our own culture. We use it to describe people in a lot of different categories. We have 
friends at work and at school. We might have friends in our neighborhood or friends in our social groups. We have friends from days gone by, friends we haven't seen in 20 or more years, friends that we never talked to. We even now have online friends that we share our lives of uh, posts and pictures, some of whom we've never even met. And some of us may even be tempted to gauge our status or worth by the number of those friends that we have online. And while we can recognize that it's just like the word love, you know, we say we love our spouse and we say we love pizza, the word friend is fairly broad. And yet all of us, I think, would admit that we long for friendships that are more than just this broad meaning that we have come to use in our culture. We want friendships that have depth, at least some friendships that have uh, reliability, that are faithful. You know, the proverb says there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I think that's what describes what's really in our hearts, that we long for that kind of friend, someone who would stick with us through thick and thin. We long for meaningful relationship. We long for true community. We long for the kind of friendship that is faithful and can weather any storm. And some of us long for more of that because maybe we're extroverts, and some of us who are introverts long for fewer of that, but there's still that same kind of longing, whatever the quantity is. And I would argue that this is so because we were made for this. We have been created in the image of God, the Trinitarian God. And so we were made to both know and to be known. In James, in Second Chronicles, and in the passage in Isaiah that we read today, uh, Abraham is called a friend of God. He is the only one that is called a friend of God by name in the Old Testament. And so this sets Abraham apart. And what we see in this unfolding text, uh, this saga, and this is really just the beginning of a larger narrative. It's going to continue not only through chapter 18, but we'll see it continue in the following chapters as well. One of the things that's highlighted is this friendship that Abraham experiences with God, and it's something I want us to consider today. The text that we're looking at opens with this uh, middle-of-the-day heat that is experienced in the Middle East, and if you've ever traveled to that part of the world, you know that it is an incredible kind of heat, a kind of heat that if it weren't for the modern conveniences that we have with air conditioning and such, that you want to get out of. And this is what people of old did. During the middle of the day, they stopped work. Uh, It's our version of a siesta. Uh, They rested because it was just too hot. They went in, they found shade, they went into a tent. And so this is what is happening in Abraham's life, a very routine thing, when all of it is interrupted suddenly by this uh, unexpected arrival of these three guests. And I don't know if you read it this way, but just sounds a little strange the way Abraham reacts until you realize he knows who has come. Like when it first describes Abraham, he sounds like he's all in a tizzy, you know, just scurrying around, hurrying, urgency, and all of this. But what we have to realize is he recognized one of the guests. And it becomes clear in the text that he does because he addresses him not as Lord in the sense that Lord may have been used like sir or something in our own language, but he addresses him as Adonai. He recognized one of these visitors as God himself. And this was uh, quite possible because God had just visited him in a theophany that we read and looked at in Genesis 17. 
Now, in Genesis 17, from 16 to 17, how much time passed? Do you remember? 13 years, right? Because it was the birth of Ishmael, and then now Ishmael's 13 years old. So this incredible amount of time really has passed between these two chapters. But here, we don't see that same amount of time pass. It's much shorter. In fact, it's not much time at all, because God had just told Abraham that about a year from now, Sarah's going to have a son, and he says the same thing to him in chapter 18 as well. And so it's understandable then why Abraham, this was all fresh on his mind, why he would have recognized this uh, appearance of God. He uh, appeals to his visitors to stay and to rest. He wants them to wash their feet and to enjoy what he describes as a morsel of bread. This is where Southern hospitality originates, okay? Because if you've ever, or you could plug in so many, I think of Italian culture, right? You know, everything is low, you know, lowered, so your expectations aren't very high. And then when the, it's delivered, it's this cornucopia, this overabundance of food and hospitality and so forth. And we kind of get that here with Abraham. He describes it as a morsel of bread. It turns into something much more than that. The, the visitors agree, and he begins going to work. He invites Sarah to begin working on the bread. He goes out to the herd, selects what is described as a, a tender and good calf, a choice piece of meat for the meal. Uh, one of his, his attendants works on preparing this. Uh, he goes to work on the milk and curds. Now, for us as Americans, it's hard to understand how this would have been a comfortable situation because we know that all of this takes a lot of time. But in Middle Eastern culture, even today, this is no big deal. You, meals just take a long time. It's not uncommon to spend two or three hours to have a meal, even one that's prepared for you, let alone when you consider no technology and they were literally out there uh, preparing this calf and cooking it in the most rudimentary way. And so this was just part of the culture, that it was an experience. It was a, it was a, a time of relationship. It was a time that... Time was spent together. And then Abraham serves his guests and like an attendant stands there to serve them. Now, we might wonder, why does God visit Abraham in this way? Why does he come to him and, and, and in this involving himself in this appearance as well as the time that is involved in this situation? Well, as I mentioned, this is part of a bigger narrative. We're coming up on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and a lot of times we reduce that story to the act of judgment or to the sin that happened there. But I hope you, you can see beginning today how this is a bigger picture of what God is doing, and in particular, how God involves Abraham as his friend in this process. He comes to him first and foremost and shares a meal with him, something that was very culturally appropriate. It's the only encounter in the Old Testament, of God coming and dining with a man. And so we can say that this was an act of grace, something that God didn't have to do, wasn't necessary. I mean, he could have come and just given the information to Abraham. As a prophet, this is what's going to happen. This is how God normally worked. But instead, he comes and spends this time with him. We look, there's no new information given to us in this text about the covenant. Everything we're told that's reiterated here, we've already been told. The only new information really is about Sodom and Gomorrah. And God could have simply given him that information. But we see him inviting Abraham in and involving him. What God is doing is not only demonstrating his friendship toward Abraham, but he's equipping Abraham. 
He's equipping him because he's going to be the father of his people. God has chosen a people for himself, and he has elected Abraham to be the father. Even though these people don't even exist, Isaac's not even been born yet, he is preparing Abraham to lead them effectively. If you think about how we do things in our own culture, if you think about a business transaction where you go and you sit down, uh, that's at one level where you sit down and conduct business. It's at a different level when you do it around a meal, isn't it? When you sit and have a meal together in a business transaction, uh, you tend to have more time. You get to know each other a little bit better. It's a little more intimate. It's even more so if you were to invite someone into your home. Uh, That would be altogether different if you've ever had that kind of business transaction. This is a demonstration of God's love and care for Abraham. It also gives us instruction in hospitality. Hospitality is one of those things that we see encouraged throughout Scripture. It's in fact, given as one of the qualifications of an elder in Titus 1. In 1 Peter 4, he encourages believers there to show hospitality using the gifts that they've been given. Peter writes, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. You wonder why Peter wrote that? Without grumbling? Okay, this is not something that you would cross-stitch on a pillow, but this is something that you might uh, put on an index card and tape it to the inside of your kitchen cabinet. Because I don't know about you, but when I'm preparing a meal for my family or preparing a meal for guests, there is this certain intensity that becomes involved where I want everything to go right. And guess what? Things don't always go right. And sometimes timing isn't always correctly adjusted, and sometimes other people come in with other demands. And so for Peter to write, show hospitality without grumbling, is something that is highly practical for us. And if you've ever invited others to come, I mean, you know what we do, right? We, we, we go into these tizzies, and we have all of this emotion and fervor, and then when everybody shows up, we put our smiles on and straighten our our outfits and so forth and put on the show. Show hospitality without grumbling, he says. And then as each has received a gift, serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. A lot of times we think of hospitality, and I realize I only just reaffirmed this idea. We think of hospitality only as having people over for dinner. And that isn't, hospitality is not limited to that. We think of fancy tables or nice decorations or that, you know, perfectly executed meal. And because we think of hospitality in this way, if we don't have those abilities or if we don't have those resources, we think that we're somehow excused from hospitality. But I think this is wrong, and I think it misses out on something quite beneficial. Because as someone who shows hospitality, you are not only serving another, but you also receive benefits of hospitality. One of the things that I've learned in my own experience is that true hospitality is not about the fanciness of the meal, but about being made to feel welcome. I've been in some fancy situations and not felt very welcome and didn't really want to go back or stay. I've been in some very humble settings where I was made to feel welcomed and wanted to stay for a lot longer. Hospitality is about making others feel welcome. And Peter says that we are to use the gifts that we have received as good stewards of God's varied grace. 
And so we can ask, what gifts have we been given? What gifts have we received? Reminding ourselves that they are gifts. These aren't things that we've done that we can, you know, accolade, ask for accolades for them. These are gifts from God, whether they are spiritual gifts or the resources that He's entrusted us. What good things has God given to us that we can share with others? It may not be food. It may be taking somebody fishing. It may be helping someone run errands. It may be using your pickup to go haul something. It may be sitting with them just to give them company. It may be going to a movie. And I realize that in in a way this kind of blurs the line between service and hospitality. But the point is, is that as believers, as we serve others, we ought to make them feel welcome. Have you ever thought someone was coming to help you, but they made comments about how much of an inconvenience it was, that you felt so bad that you were like, I really didn't want to help at all? You know, that's not the way Christians ought to behave. We ought to behave and serve others in a way that makes them feel welcome. This is true for both other believers, but especially non-believers. Because this becomes an incredible testimony to an unbelieving world when we show hospitality, when we make others feel welcome as we serve them and as we care for them. So consider the good gifts that God has given to you and ask Him how you might share them in a way that would welcome others to experience God's gracious love that he has bestowed on you. Now, we look at Abraham's example of hospitality. We could have taken the same thing and looked at how um, God was developing him to be the father of many nations. We won't for the sake of time. But what I want you to see is Abraham's act of hospitality wasn't the greatest act of kindness here. I would argue that God's coming to spend time with Abraham was actually an incredibly kinder uh, act that was shown here. That was an act of friendship in the sense that God condescended to Abraham. He is the only one, as I said, that has been called a friend of God in the Old Testament. And yet God took the time, not that God is limited by space or time, but took the time to come and use this experience with Abraham to not only provide him with information that he needed or didn't need, but with the experience to show him his love for him. And you and I on this side of the cross are called friends of God. That's what Jesus said. He said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The friendship that we experience with God as a result of the gospel, the, 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 good, the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, that, that he has reconciled us to God, we who were his enemies. Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And so in an incredible act of God's free grace, he has made us his friends. We're friends of God. And that's an incredible thing to consider, a thing to think about that, It may in some ways make us uncomfortable or may in some ways make us scratch our head. But as friends of God, Jesus says, we will do what he has commanded us. And the reason that we can do this with joy is because we know that his commands are good. 
You think again, if you're, if you're a parent, if you've ever seen kids raised, you know that you do things for little kids, right, because you love them and you're protecting them. They don't understand that, you know, you pop that hand when they go to stick it in the, in the, the light socket, but you do that because you love them, you want to protect them. And then they become teenagers and they begin to question all of your love that you're showing them. And then hopefully they come back around as young adults and realize, oh my goodness, they loved me the whole time that they were doing all of these things that I protested and so forth. God's love is perfect love. You know, we get jaded, we get hurt, we begin to question other people's motives, whether it's our parents or anyone else's. But God's love is perfect. And so every command that he has given us is for our good. It's for our benefit. It's it's a way in which not only he protects us, it's a way in which he gives us good things. And Abraham is just beginning to learn this, right? We've seen him waver. We've seen him do some kind of knucklehead things. And then the Lord is continuing to grow him in this faith. Because if you think forward to what Abraham's going to experience after he gets the son and that ultimate test of having to climb up the mountain thinking that he's going to sacrifice his son, how does a man do that? It's it's because he has grown in faith and knows that his God is good and loves him. And so he's growing in this. Well, Sarah's growing in this too. And Sarah is still struggling a little bit here. Uh, I think Abraham is too. We don't get the insight into that. But I, I don't think... That Sarah's alone in the struggle. We just get some uh, the, the curtain uh, pulled back a little bit, so to speak. Uh, the angels say, where is Sarah, your wife? And Abraham says, in the tent. And then the Lord steps in and speaks, this time next year, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And then the narrator tells us that Sarah is listening in the tent. She can hear all of this. She thinks she's hidden. She thinks they don't know that, that, uh, that, that she can hear, that she's unseen, and that no one knows. And then, verse 11, the, the, the narrator again reminds us as if, we, if, as if we needed it, that they're old. Right? We've been told this over and over. They just keep getting, like all of us, we all keep getting older. They keep getting older as well. And then it's added, the way of women has ceased with Sarah. This is saying that it is impossible now humanly, physically, physiologically impossible for her to have a child. And so you can understand then why Sarah would laugh to herself and say, in essence, to herself, really? I mean, that's, that's kind of what sums up what Sarah's reaction was. Now, the narrator helps us a little bit to see how this is all set up. That God is graciously doing a good thing for Sarah and for Abraham. She was struggling in her faith. And God doesn't treat them with condescension or with contempt because they struggle. But he lovingly walks them through this journey of faith. She thought her laughter, she thought her thoughts were in secret. Um, She's still within earshot. She hears the conversation and then she hears the Lord say, Why did Sarah laugh? Why did Sarah question? Is there anything too difficult for the Lord? And at this point, she steps out, or at least through the tent, says vocally, I didn't laugh, right? She objects. Why? Because she was afraid. You can imagine how powerful of an object lesson this was, both for Sarah and for Abraham, because it's a powerful object lesson for us today as well. The Lord has said to Abraham, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now that's something you can cross-stitch on a pillow, right? That's something that's a good reminder to stick before us. 
to remember over and over again. Every time that we think we've messed up too far, or that we've messed up and sinned too many times, we need to remind ourselves, is anything too hard for the Lord? Every time you feel the condemnation of the evil one who whispers in your ear, you're the worst, God could never love you, you remind yourself, is anything too hard for the Lord? Every time you feel like you've strayed too far or feel like God has abandoned you, you remind yourself, is anything too hard for the Lord? Because just as God had promised Sarah a son in her old age and was about to deliver on that promise, He has promised us as well that in Christ all of our sins are forgiven, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that He will never leave us or forsake us. The lesson that Sarah needed to learn this day is the same lesson that we need to learn. That God will always do everything He says, even when all of her circumstances say otherwise. God will do everything He says, even when all of your circumstances, the way of women had ceased with Sarah, everything about her circumstance said, no way is there a son in the forecast. And yet God is going to do exactly what He said He would do. So your circumstances may tell you that you have been abandoned and you're, you're hopeless, but in Christ you're not. Your circumstances may tell you that your needs will not be met, but Christ has provided, said in Christ we will have all of our provision according to His riches and glory. Your circumstances may tell you that the pain of the past will never go away and will enslave you forever, but in Christ captives are set free. The God who calls us His friends, who has made us His friends, is able to do anything. And in His perfect time, timing, He will do all that He has promised. Well, after the meal is over, the Lord allows Abraham to come with him. And this is just the beginning of this unfolding saga. But it's important to see that he didn't have to bring Abraham along with him. But he takes him along. Again, another act of friendship that he's demonstrating toward Abraham. It's not because Abraham has anything to offer or say or any input that's worth giving. But God is a friend to him. He says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great nation, a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. God explains why he's not going to hide this from Abraham, that he, is, he shall surely become a great and mighty nation. So Abraham needs to understand then that in the justice of God, it's not simply about judgment but it's also that God's people must keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. This is the language of the covenant, okay? This is the language of the covenant. When you obey, God's blessing comes. When you disobey, God's judgment comes. It's that simple. Now, if we forget the covenant, I have said this a number of times already. I'm going to say it again today. I might say it again another time. Listen closely because this is a huge obstacle for many of us as Christians. If we forget the covenant, then we turn biblical Christianity into something of, if I obey God, then God treats me good. If I disobey God, then He's going to get me. That is fear and guilt and shame that are the motivators in this way of thinking, and that is not the Christianity of the Bible. But in the covenant, 
we remember this. God loves me, and I know any command he's given me is for my good. Because God loves me, I want to obey, and know obedience is his way of not only giving me good things, but protecting me from bad things. In this relationship of covenant, there is no guilt and shame because Christ has kept the covenant perfectly in our place so that even when we fall, even when we sin, what Christ has done for us has dealt with it so that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Isn't this how Satan comes after us when we fall and sin? He takes us back to that legalistic, the little Pharisee rises up inside of all of us and tries to turn it into this exchange that we need to make as if karma was in some way compatible with Christianity, that if I do good, God owes me and is going to do something good. That's hogwash. And so we've got to come back to this covenantal, remind ourselves of the covenant love of God, that in Christ, nothing can separate us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is teaching Abraham about his covenant love, reminding him, I have chosen you. The word here for chosen is really the words normally translated known. It's God saying, I know you. It's this relational language of friendship that God says, I have set you apart. And so in God's covenant love, he is going to bring Abraham into the process of judgment. He's going to let him see the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, for us in our culture, it's very difficult for us to understand judgment as having anything to do with love. I mean, isn't it? You, you can literally watch somebody run a stop sign out here, and if you say, you ran a stop sign, what's their response? Don't judge me. I mean, that's the culture that we live in. So this idea that judgment can have anything to do with love is really hard for us. It's countercultural for us to even consider this. But judgment can and should be rooted in love. And when it comes to God's judgment, it always is. Judgment, for example, can change a person. Judgment can bring repentance. All of us have experienced this. There's no one in this room who is a believer who hasn't experienced the uh, repentance that comes from judgment. Judgment can bring restitution for the one who's been wronged. This is something that we may not say that we want until we've been wronged. (laughs) And then sometimes we do. If someone was going through the parking lot right now with a hammer bashing all of our windshields, none of us want to go out there and pay the cost for that. We want the perpetrator to pay the restitution for that damage. Judgment can bring an end to evil practice and harmful action. You think of the, uh, the uh, perpetual drunk driver. When their license is revoked, what is happening in that judgment? Well, we're all a little bit safer. So don't misunderstand judgment's important role for all of us, that in love, judgment is a good thing. And so God says to Abraham, bringing him along, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. This language of God coming down is not language describing God has to come down and see. We know this is it, it's, it's anthropomorphic language. It's for us to understand this, that God is in a, in a 
condescending in a good way here for us to help us understand what he is doing, that he is involved, that he knows, that he cares. We already know he's omniscient. I mean, even from this text alone, what he did with Sarah shows that he knew when she laughed to herself, when she had those thoughts secretly in her own mind, and he revealed that he knew that, that God is omniscient. He didn't have to come down, but instead he does this, and he does it for Abraham's sake, his friend. God's coming alongside of him. He's going to show him the importance not only of judgment, but of justice and righteousness. And so in the coming weeks, we will unpack this and look more at what is going to happen with Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham was experiencing this incredible love of God as a friend. Through the visit, through the helping of Sarah and her doubt, and now with the stage being set for the judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. And you and I, who are trusting in Christ... Know the love of God that we too are counted as friends. We get to join with Abraham now in being counted as friends with God. We know that while we were his enemies, he reconciled us to God, making us his friends. We have responded to the invitation that is often quoted in evangelistic services where Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to eat with him and he with me. Is that not a picture of what Abraham got to experience? That is Jesus' offer to us in our unbelief. He stands at the door and knocks. If we let him in, we get to dine with the creator of us and all things. And then we know as believers the blessing of God's ultimate hospitality in that he has come to make his home with us. John 14, 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. God's offer to us is to come and dwell with us. And that's what the result of trusting Christ is, is that we're not only reconciled to God, our sins are dealt with, but we are now made friends. We're credited with righteousness. We now have access to the God who made all things. And so may we continually trust God as our friend and obey Him, knowing that His commands are for our good and for His glory. Therefore, our flourishing and in turn demonstrate the love that has been shown to us so that we can show that love to others. Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And today Jesus says to you who trust in him, you are my friends. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have seen your friendship demonstrated to Abraham, and we know the friendship now that we have because of the work of Christ, we thank you that we are called your friends. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to unpack all of that, um, the security the, 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 that is found in your faithfulness, uh, that you never change, that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. But Lord, also the great benefit of knowing that your commands are for our good and for our blessing and for our, for our thriving, and that we would rest in that and obey out of joy. So would you... Um, remind us then as we go through our week that we are your friends and that you are our friend. And may we trust you completely to do all that you have said you will do even when our circumstances say the opposite. Help us to trust you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.